This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. It is a delight to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen. Um, as, um, as Matt was leading us in his, um, what he called an extended exhortation and leading to a song, I think that was a very a providential moment for us to have the time to consider how very often we lose a grip on the goodness of God. And those words that we were singing in that song, his, his, his goodness is running after us. Those are words borrowed to, from Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will run after me all the days of my life. And here's how good God is. Because of Jesus Christ, one day you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a day it will be when we are delivered from the brokenness of the sin-cursed world and we enter into the fullness of God's kingdom that has been secured for us through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is so good to us. And we, eye is not seen and ear is not heard and the mind is not even fully conceived. All the goodness he's prepared for us in the days to come. Amen. I would invite you now to take your Bible and go to Esther chapter 3. I'll be reading from Esther chapter 3 verses 12 through chapter 4 verse 17 in just a moment. As I was preparing for this sermon this Sunday, it was very difficult for me not to make significant connections to the text and what has been going on in my life and my family's life and, and a number of your lives who were formerly a part of our previous congregation at Covenant, and Com- Covenant Community Church in University City. Um, so you'll have to excuse me this morning as I bring the word to you this morning. I believe that God is going to also bring a little of me. <laughs> Um, into this sermon this morning, um, because these truths um, that we are going to look at this morning have been rich, stabilizing, and bringing so much assurance into my life over the last couple years. It was on Thursday, March 12th, 2020. I was sitting, actually not too far away from here, in Chickies and Pete's in South Philly with our pastoral team, and we were having a strategic planning meeting. We were We were filled with crab fries and joy um, as we were anticipating the Easter season, planning for Easter, considering ways to reach our unbelieving neighbors, filled with joy and faith for our future together because God had been good to us. Over the five years up until that point in our life as a church plant, God had been merciful to allow us to grow and experience his favor in a, in a difficult neighborhood filled with transient college students and young urban professionals who were constantly on the move. But God was blessing our efforts. We were gathering together in Jesus' name. We were growing in our faith. We were serving the poor and the marginalized. We, we were helping young mothers, and we were defending the cause of the unborn. There were so many good things that were going on in the life of our, our church in University City, and God was filling our hearts with the anticipation of what was to come. That was Thursday, March 12th, 2020. We were celebrating the sweet providences of God. But two days later, that would turn. Two days later, an unexpected 
reality began to set in for us as a local church and for you and for our city and for our nation. COVID-19 began to take our country by storm and the restrictions began to become a very present and felt reality for us right here in our city. And starting on March 16th, 2020, the city was in lockdown. As colleges and universities shut their campuses down, a third of our church congregation was displaced from the city. And added to that, over the course of the next three to four months, those young urban professionals who didn't have to work at work any longer left the city, and many of them not planning to return. By June of 2020, enough critical families and leaders had decided to move out of Philly, and many of them had no plans to return. And we began to realize, as a local church, that we were likely not going to make it. We fasted, we prayed, we sought counsel, and that led to me sitting with Pastor Jeff up in his office on July 7th, 2020, talking about the potential of what we know to be reality today, the merging of the remnants of our local church with Christ Church. And the reason why I remember that date so vividly, July 7th, 2020, is because that night after that meeting, I received a phone call from my father that one of my five brothers unexpectedly died due to heart complications from an ongoing struggle with drug addiction. While all this is happening, our youngest son was dealing with sudden, a sudden onset of debilitating symptoms from a co-infection of COVID and Lyme's disease and an already weak immune system that he was born with. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know what was wrong. And things got dark real quick in our home. In the space of a little over three months, we were, we were suddenly and unexpectedly suffering the loss of our church, the loss of my brother, and the loss of our young son's health. And you add to that, our closest friends were among those who departed from the city during that time, and that everything was on lockdown even though we knew it wasn't the case, we felt so alone and so unsure of the future. So while I sat at Chickas and Pete's on March 12, 2020, enjoying the sweet providences of God with my fellow friends and co-laborers in the gospel, I had no idea that life would take such a sudden, unexpected, and bitter turn. And I'm sure every single one of you can recount times in your life when life took a sudden, unexpected, and bitter turn. Maybe some of you are in the midst of one of those moments right now. None of us can escape this reality that in this sin cursed, broken world, life can take these sudden, unexpected, and bitter turns. And the question I want us to consider, the question the book of Esther calls us to consider this morning, is that, is there a way? 
to respond to these sudden turns without pretending it doesn't hurt like you know what, and with hope that God and his invisible hand is still at work for our good and for his glory. The question, the next section of the story of Esther causes us to consider is how do we respond to God when life takes those sudden, bitter, unexpected turns? In Esther chapter 3, verses 12 through chapter 4, verse 17, I believe the Lord wants us to consider that when life takes unexpected turns, we must surrender to the unseen hand of our sovereign God. When life takes unexpected turns, we must surrender to the unseen hand of our sovereign God. With that in view, let me direct your attention now to Esther chapter 3, verse 12. Let us hear the word of God. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the people, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. And it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be, read, to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurried, hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up into the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews." 
Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be One to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. That is the word of God. May he have his blessing to its reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We've just read how life took a sudden, bitter, and unexpected turn for God's people in Persia. As Haman's narcissism is on full public display, in essence we can say Mordecai wasn't getting jiggy with it, okay? He will not bow down to Haman. This bruises Haman's ego so deeply that he hatches a plan not only to get revenge on Mordecai, but to actually eliminate all Mordecai's people, the Jews. The punishment definitely doesn't fit the crime. I mean, Haman could have just slapped Mordecai in the face, right? That seems effective these days. But no. Haman persuades his drinking buddy, King Ahasuerus, to approve a plan with a massive budget to, quote, destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews. The result is a royal decree that will be shared across all 127 provinces of Persia that on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, all Jews will be executed on the same day. This is some insane, pre-Hitler crazy stuff. In an instant, the 13th day of Adar went from being an ordinary day on the calendar to a day of genocide where every single Jew feared that they would die at once. This was sudden, this was unexpected, and this was bitter. How would they, they navigate this bitter news? How would they respond? 
to this sudden turn of events as we take a look at their responses, especially the responses of Mordecai and Esther, I believe we should take note because how they respond informs us how we too should respond when life takes a bitter and unexpected turn. So, so let's consider from this section of the story that when life takes a bitter, unexpected turn, we must surrender our lives to the sovereign hand of God in at least three ways. We lament, we plead, and we act. First, we lament. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done by Haman, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. Now, Mordecai wasn't alone. Look at verse 3. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them in sackcloth and ashes. You see, when life takes a sudden, unexpected, bitter turn, it's appropriate to mourn, to weep, to cry. I'm sure you're aware that the Jewish culture was a very demonstrative culture and, and filled with, with much, much religious symbolism. So tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth was symbolic of entering into intense mourning and grief. The, the ordinary and comfortable clothes that you would wear for, for work and for worship and play were exchanged for uncomfortable, coarse clothing that was made out of sacks that would be used to hold flour and grain. The ashes that they would sprinkle on themselves were a, a symbol of death and mortality, expressing humility and the frailty of human life. In other words, among God's people, in the culture of Israel, feelings of sadness and grief were not to be suppressed, but expressed. There was space in their culture to express the emotions associated with grief and pain and loss and uncertainty. You see, when life turned bitter, God's people knew it wasn't healthy to keep it all inside. They knew that God didn't expect them to suppress their sorrow, to remain stoic, or to hold it all together, or proverbially take it like a man. In God's kingdom, there was a place for losing it. In God's kingdom, there was a place for messy sorrowful, weeping, and crying. And here's the reason why. Because we were not created for bad news. We were created for good news. But sin introduced sudden sadness into a once perfect but now broken world. And so in this broken world, church, we cry. Until Jesus makes all things new and wipes every tear away, church, we weep. 
Weeping is not weakness. Weeping is worship. When it is a broken heart, humbly expressing grief in the presence of our sovereign God. This is what it means to lament. It's important to note that lamenting, there is both a horizontal and a vertical element. What's obvious in the text is that Laman is lamenting in public. His crying, his mourning is seen and heard at the king's gate. So there's a, there's a horizontal element to lamenting. Mordecai was lamenting out loud and in public. He, he wasn't simply grieving in private. He wasn't keeping it to himself because there's no shame in lament. It's okay and it's healthy for people to hear us cry. Oh, I remember. I remember during those days I was explaining and describing at the beginning of this sermon how very often in our small group that met on Thursday nights for dinner at Rachel and Peter Prey's house, um, those dear friends gave us plenty of space to just sit there and mourn. I'll never forget that, Aaron and Abby. Aaron Jean. We'll never forget how our friends gave us space to lament and cry and mourn. And some of the mourning they were a part of. There's no shame in weeping. There is space for expressing grief in the church of Jesus Christ. And weeping is not weakness. In fact, when others weep, we're called by Jesus to weep with those who weep. Because in this broken, sin-cursed world, life very often takes a turn in a bitter direction. There's a horizontal element to this lamenting, but there's also, and most importantly, a vertical element. Ultimately, this lament of Mordecai is directed to God. Even though the text does not explicitly say it, that's what this act was. This was an act of worship. Remember that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not overtly mention the name of God. This is a literary device to direct our attention that even though when it doesn't seem it, even though when we do not see it, even though when we do not feel it, God is still at work through his unseen hand, working all things according to the counsel of his will. So even in this moment of Mordecai's lament, even though the lament is not explicitly said to be directed to God, it is indeed being directed to God. The unseen, unmentioned God of heaven and earth is hearing and responding to Mordecai's cry. It's in times of sudden and unexpected pain and loss that we are tempted to think that God is somehow absent, isn't it? That God has let something slip through the crack. That God has had, a, had a, an oops moment in our lives. And here's what this what lament reminds us of. Here's what lament directs our attention to. That in times of unexpected hurt, times of unexpected pain, God is no less in control. God is no less present. God cares for you 
and is available to help you and will listen to the cry of your heart. See, lament is such a significant part of Christian worship. It shouldn't surprise us that out of the 150 psalms in our inspired hymn book, 42 of them are categorized as songs of lament. That's almost one-third of our inspired songbook in the scriptures that direct our attention that, ev- that so often in life we experience brokenness and sadness and grief. Things don't always go according to plan. Things don't always go the way that we hoped. Things certainly don't go away the way according that God has designed. And when we are on living on the edge of experiencing pain and sorrow and sadness and loss and heartache and heartbreak, God hears our cries. And not only hears our cries, the Psalms invite us Out of the depths, O Lord, I cry to you. There's a vertical dimension to our lament. God invites us to pour out our broken, sad, and sorrowful hearts in his presence. A book that I highly recommend that will help fill out this category of lament is written by a man named Mark Vrogop, and it's entitled Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies, Discovering the Grace of Lament. And in this book, he offers a very helpful definition of biblical lament. He says, quote, Lament can be defined as a loud cry, a howl, or a passionate expression of grief. However, in the Bible, lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness. It's more than walking through the stages of grief. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Notice those words. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is not simply airing out our grievances horizontally. It's an act of worship whereby we direct our cries to God, acknowledging our hurt in hope that he will hear us and he will help us and he will assure us that we can trust him through it. Lament is prayer in pain that leads to trust in the unseen hand of our sovereign God. So when do we lament? We lament when life suddenly and unexpectedly turns in a bitter direction. We lament when things around us, things inside us, or things happen to us that do not line up to the way God created the world to operate under his kingly rule. Stacy Gleddy Smith makes the following observation. A lament honestly and specifically names a situation or circumstance that is painful, wrong, or unjust. In other words, a circumstance that does not, li- does not align with God's character and therefore does not make sense within God's kingdom. Something's happening that doesn't make sense because this isn't the way God designed it. So loss was not a part of God's original plan for us in his world. We lament that. 
Pain was not a part of God's original plan for us in his world. We lament pain. Sickness was not a part of God's plan for us in his his world. We lament sickness. Death was not part of God's plan for us in his, his beautiful world. We lament death. War was not a part of God's plan for us in his world. We lament war. Jobs weren't meant to be lost. Children were not meant to be miscarried. Cancer wasn't meant to kill. Friends weren't meant to betray. Marriages were not meant to be lost. And ultimately, life was not meant to be lived apart from fellowship with the triune God. And when life does not go according to God's plan and we feel it and we sense it, church, we lament it. It breaks us. And sometimes it's not just the stuff that's going on out there, church. You know it's the stuff that goes on right within the walls of your very own home. When life suddenly and unexpectedly takes a bitter turn, we aren't meant to deny the goodness of God. We are meant to lament that this is what happens in a world that chose to turn its back on God and do things our own way. Mark Rogop, once again, says, Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Obviously, the accent this morning on this text and on this part of the story and on this particular sermon is there's much to lament. We, 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 we don't just lament. God is so good. And we do experience the goodness of God in the land of the living. And this is the paradox that he's speaking of. We live life trying to wrestle with this paradox that sometimes we experience the goodness of God. The sun is shining down on us. Things are going well. Life is thriving and flourishing. And then in the blink of an eye, it gets better. And we suffer. And we experience pain. Or we're really close to those who are suffering and experiencing pain. So church, here's the category. Here's what we do. When life takes a sudden, unexpected, bitter turn, church, we need to learn how to lament. Prayers in pain, reaching to trust in the unseen hand of our good and sovereign God. Weeping is not weakness. Weeping is worship when we express our pain in the presence of a God who loves us and cares for us and has done everything necessary to make all things new for us and for his glory. We lament. And really, that's all. If I, I, I probably could have stopped my sermon there as far as time was concerned. Two more thoughts, but I really thought the Lord wanted us to build up that category. We lament. Second, there's that we plead. I could say we pray, but what we see happening here is a lot more than just prayer the way we think of it. There's desperation here. There's pleading. Notice in verse 4 that when Esther becomes aware that Mordecai is publicly lamenting, she tries to stop him. First of all, don't do that. People in pain need time to express their pain. 
It's not our job to tell those who are suffering around us how or how long they should or should not express their sorrow. Sometimes we hurt people. Sometimes we hurt hurting people by prematurely telling them to stop lamenting. But once she realizes what's going on and what Haman has done and how she, Mordecai, and all the people are in danger of extinction, notice in verse 15 that before she acts, before she does anything, before this plan that we've read about actually begins to to take place, she calls for a fast. Fasting can be Hard to understand and even harder to practice if we aren't aware of what it's for. Remember that the ways of God's kingdom are filled with lots of symbolism and double meanings that demonstrate the the intrinsic relationship between the seen and the unseen, the physical and the spiritual. And fasting is one of those disciplines that does that. In fasting, one is ceasing to eat physical food as an expression of their spiritual dependence upon God. Just like you need food to to thrive physically or on an even deeper level, you need God to survive holistically. Fasting is a way of pleading for God to act. Fasting is saying, God, if you do not act on our behalf, we are doomed Now, there are nuances to the use of fasting and different purposes for fasting, but this is primary. As the body hungers for food, in fasting we are symbolizing how our souls are hungering for God to act. Therefore, fasting is is an act of dependence whereby we are desperately pleading for God to help. John Piper, in his short volume, A Hunger for God, Desiring God Through Fasting and Prayer, makes the following comment about fasting. He says, fasting is an offering of emptiness to show where fullness can be found. In other words, fasting is saying, Lord, my hands are empty. I'm not full. I've got nothing to bring. I can't but you can. That's fasting. God, I've got nothing. I can't, but you can. I'm longing for you to intervene. Once again, John Piper captures what we're pleading for through fasting. He says, Father, I am empty, but you are full. I am hungry, but you are the bread of heaven. I am thirsty, but you are the fountain of life. I am weak, but you are strong. I am poor, but you are rich. I am foolish, but you are wise. I am broken, but you are whole. I am dying, but your steadfast love is better than life. When God sees this confession of need and this expression of trust, he acts because the glory of his all-sufficient grace is at stake. So, so fasting is an expression of desperate trust in the unseen hand of our sufficient God to act for our good and for our glory. So, so when life takes sudden, unexpected, bitter turns, we must surrender to the unseen hand of God in desperate pleading. And sometimes that involves fasting. 
But unlike the direct intervention of God that we see in other places in the scripture, when God acts on the other side of our pleading, sometimes he acts indirectly, not directly. Like we see in Exodus, we see signs and we see wonders and we see plagues and, and we see a Red Sea parting. We don't see that kind of intervention in the story of Esther. Here in the story of Esther, we see another way that God acts on our behalf. Sometimes God acts through our actions. Sometimes God works through our work. Sometimes the invisible hand of God works through our visible hands to make broken things better. Notice finally that when life takes unexpected turns, oh yes, we lament. Oh yes, we plead. But we also see here that we must act. Notice that lamenting and fasting doesn't lead to passivity. Lamenting and fasting in our story leads to activity. Mordecai rises from the place of, rises from the place of lament. And he doesn't just let go and let God. Mordecai recognizes that there is something that can be done. Now listen, it may or may not work. There's a lot of risk involved. There are reasons on paper why what they're gonna, the plan they're going to hatch, <laughs> the odds are not in their favor that it's going to happen. But Mordecai seems to recognize in verse 14 that if their plan doesn't work, if what they are preparing to do as they move to action, if that doesn't take place, God will find another way. But they feel responsible. They have to do something. And he believes that it's possible that Esther was actually placed in that kingdom for such a time as this. That she was in the right place at the right time to make a broken thing better. That God, God's invisible hand, would work through her visible hands to do something to make this whole treacherous situation resolved. And her attitude is, if I perish, I perish. I'll do my part. It may work. It may not. But I'll do my part. I mean, there's so much to draw out of this, and this isn't the last message in this series. But let it be sufficient to say today that all of this directs our attention to the reality that sometimes the way broken things get better is when we surrender to be instruments in God's hands. God works through our work. God works through our work of preparing and planning and risking and sacrificing and doing hard things at hard times. And this list is not exhaustive, but this is why in the face of millions of people who are lost and on their way to a Christless eternity, we have been doing the hard thing of planting churches in the inner city of Philadelphia. This is why in the face of the opioid epidemic and the ever-increasing rise of drug-related deaths, we start an addictions recovery ministry. We have the Hope House in TTR. We have to do something. This is why in the face of the, the millions of abortions that have taken place since Roe v. Wade, that we support emergency pregnancy centers and we peacefully protest outside of Planned Parenthoods. 
This is why in the face of economic hardships and the thousands of homeless in our city that we feed the poor through food distribution and offer our services at established rescue missions. This is why in the face of war, we send relief and aid to refugees fleeing for their lives in places like Ukraine. This is why on a very practical level, we have a benevolent fund as a local church. Because when there are times when your life takes a sudden, unexpected turn and you're in need, we're ready to help. We act in all these ways. Because when life takes sudden turns, God works through our work to bring relief, healing, help, and care. Sometimes after we lament, after we plead, God chooses to intervene through our interventions. Sometimes we need to get up off our knees and realize that there's something we can do to help. Sometimes God has placed us where we are, on our block, in our workplace, on our campus, in our family, for such a time as this. Like Esther, we need to realize that sometimes we may be the only person who's in a position to help. No one but Esther was in the place to plead with the king on behalf of her people. Mordecai couldn't do what she was about to do. If she didn't mediate between the king who had the authority to save and the Jews who were on the verge of death and judgment, then there was no hope. She needed to act. She had a responsibility. Sometimes we are passive church when God is calling us to be active. We're waiting for someone else to intervene when God wants you, God wants me to be the means through which he will bring his mercy and redemption. Sometimes God is calling us who are tempted to so easily be passive, to be active, to advocate, mediate, and be a part of making broken things better for the good of one another and for the glory of God. And wrapping this up, that's what you have done for us, Christ Church. That's what you have done for us by receiving the remainder of our church into your church family. You lamented, you pleaded, and you acted on our behalf. That's what so many of you did for me when I lost my brother. Only a brother who lost a sister could help a brother who lost a brother like my friend Bill did. He lamented with me and prayed with me. And acted on my behalf. Just like I had to do for him a couple years before when he lost his sister. That's what we do for one another, church. When life takes bitter, unexpected, sudden turns, we lament with one another. We plead with God on behalf of one another. And we act to be the means through which broken things become better for our good and God's glory. Oh, I wish this wasn't a part of this story just as much as you wish the things that you've experienced weren't a part of your story. But here's what they do for us. 
They point us to the day when all things will be made new. It points us to the day when Jesus will return and he will take away all pain and all sorrow and he will dry every eye and there will be no more sadness because Jesus will take this broken, sin-cursed world and make it the way it was originally made to be. And I cannot wait for that day. But until that day, let us recall that ultimately this is what Jesus has done for us, his church. He lamented. He pleaded. He acted on our behalf. Jesus is the true and better Esther. Jesus knew about his sudden and bitter turn, but before it happened, he still willingly walked into it for us. When he prayed in the garden the night before he was betrayed and crucified, he knew the cup that was before him. He knew the bitter cup that he would drink dry when he would hang on the cross in our place, suffering the wrath of God that we deserve for our salvation. And in the garden, he lamented and he pleaded, Father, if there is another way, let it be. But nevertheless, he was surrendered. Not my will, but yours be done. And he acted. He did what none other could do. He is the one mediator between God and man. As God's edict of judgment hung over us as sinful humanity, there was only one who could go into the presence of the Father and make a provision for our salvation, and he acted. And we are here today because Jesus Christ was willing to perish, and he perished. And on the third day, he rose from the dead so that we are not only delivered from the judgment of God, so that we can experience that better day and that better place where there is no more lament, no more pleading, no more interventions. What a Savior. Jesus laments. Jesus pleads. Jesus acts. He is the better mediator. He is the better king. And he's the one we trust when life takes those sudden, unexpected, and bitter turns. Because he knows. He understands. He experienced. What a Christ. What a Savior. What a hope. Amen. Let's pray.